0: Fighting for freedom every day. Broadcasting from the heartland of America. The next generation in conservative talk radio. This is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Yes,
1: indeed it is. What's up? Welcome into it. The pre- or post-Monday. Not pre-Friday. The post-Monday. We are ready to rock and roll for another one. It's a Tuesday. Let's just put it that way. It's a Tuesday, greatest day of the entire week, setting the tone As we do every single day, trying to carpe diem all over this place, if you know what I mean. Welcome into the program. So wonderful to have you with us here, broadcasting out of the heart of the nation here in Wichita, Kansas, on our flagship radio station. But we are all over the country, multiple radio stations and TV and live streaming and podcasting. However you watch or listen to the show, it's so great to have you with us. We have a powerhouse of a show today. I mean, we are really cramming it in as much as we possibly can. Bottom of this hour, we have a professor emeritus at Cleveland University, Professor David Barnheiser. He's an author of his latest book, Conformity Colleges. We'll talk about the higher education. Are they teaching kids how to critically think? Are they teaching the young generation how to prepare for the real world? Or are we just conforming into the brainwashing propaganda that we learn at higher education? So we'll talk with that at the bottom of the hour. We have some immigration issues. We have Tucker Carlson out in Russia. Kind of interesting there as he's getting ready to interview Vladimir Putin. And that one's definitely going to cause a stir. And I'm wondering what kind of danger he's in. Just to be honest, if you ask him the wrong thing, would that like start something? I don't know, man. I'd be a little as a journal. I'm not a journalist. I'm a commentator. I am not a journalist. So I don't try to claim that uh, that title at all. But if I were a journalist, I would be very hesitant and very uh, nervous to go over to Russia in the back uh, in the mother country, in the back country there and try and interview someone like Vladimir Putin. Nonetheless, welcome into the show. We have a lot to get to. I don't want to waste any time because I'm really excited for our first guest of the program today to kick it off as well. And I I think this falls under the category of climate issues as well. They try to say it does. There's a video. Now, full disclosure, the video that, that was sent to me, this was on Instagram, of an individual, I don't know who this was, that was speaking, it looked like, on some type of chamber floor, congressional floor, It wasn't Washington, D.C., maybe a state legislative seat uh, somewhere across the country. I don't know where. And the audio and video do not sync up. So obviously the red flag should pop up that maybe this is some AI-generated thing. But I want to play the video or play the audio for you because even if the video itself is fake, the argument and the stance is still a very credible one. If you even just Google this, You'll see numerous different articles pop up about how evil and terrible you are for nothing more than eating meat in society. Yeah. Say what I know. How bad is it for you to actually eat meat? Now they've used the claim that obviously eating meat's terrible for the environment and we need to get we need to stop eating them, although things like cows flatulate that caused the methane that caused the global warming but we can't kill them and eat them we have to let them stay there or we just have to kill them off or or something i'm not quite sure exactly what that stance is but apparently it goes a little bit further now if you try to eat meat
2: i believe we should move beyond all meat the assumption that the best protein comes from corpses is a racist belief (laughs) how do you know the animal would have picked you to feed off their corpse 21st century animal eating requires our complicity in a new colonialism. These events especially affect girls and young women. Your hamburger comes with a dose of misogyny. Meat eating is also one of the ways gender based structures of oppression are perpetuated. Masculinity, a construct of the gender binary facing constant destabilization, feels always under threat and eating animals is its protection racket. White supremacists weaponized it, eating meat, eggs, and dairy, and the baiting of liberal men as so-called soy boys are all part of the (laughs) neo-Nazi messaging.
1: Wow, all right, so (laughs) I, I know, no, this is not a joke. I swear, if this is real, We're taking things to another level. So I'm pretty sure that I included colonialism, racism, misogyny, genderism, and white supremacy all included in that one-minute video of you eating meat, potentially. That's, man
0: what's trending it's almost like a jeopardy
1: game how many different names and accusations you can throw into one single thing happy to have on the program i got to pick his brain on this one because i know that it's bad for the environment but man this is taking it to an entirely new level here happy to have on he's the communications director for uh power the future also author of his book as well larry barron's with us here larry happy new year to you my friend boy i tell you what eating meat just took it to a whole new level there huh
3: I, I, I will. Uh, Happy New Year to you as well. And I got to. I I really feel like a bacon cheeseburger after hearing <laughs> all that. I, uh, it seriously made me hungry for that. And and here's the thing. Your point is the right one. Of like, you know, is this real? Is it not? But the the point is, it is so close to what. Craziness we hear from the environmental left that that we don't know, right? It's like you can mimic the crazy, but it's so close to it. Even the Babylon Bee is like, yeah, we we try to stay ahead of the crazy, but it catches up with us.
1: It catches up. Well, when you Google, so here on I've just googled eating meat is racist, and we have a Yahoo Lifestyle story out of Canada that eating meat makes you a snob and a racist nature journal says speciesism is as bad as racism or sexism we have the sky news australia eating meat is now racist and speciesist and it goes on from there so i mean even if this is not a legitimate video of a politician saying this there are people out there that really truly believe in this garbage
3: yeah and i i can tell you i for one I think all those folks should travel down to Florida, go in the ocean, go in a swamp, and if a shark or alligator comes up, have this conversation with them. (laughs) And just say, you know, you're really being speciesist right now by trying to take my arm off me. And so it it is – it, it, it's laughable, but sadly, this is how, it, I, I, I hate to put on the tinfoil half, but this is how it begins, right? They put out this trial balloon and everyone's like, oh, that's so crazy, that's so crazy. And next thing you know, uh, give it six months and it's the reality. Remember when they were going to ban your gas stoves and then a super duper prinky promise that was a conspiracy theory? Yeah. And here we are a year later with states saying, oh yeah, yeah, we're definitely going to do that. So I all that to say, bacon cheeseburger now, I'm on it.
1: Bacon cheeseburger, it's what it's all about. Are they still trying to make the claim that Anna animals- Animals are bad for the environment as well, because we always I I live in Kansas. I'm in the middle of farm country, agriculture country and cattle country, which means that all the cattle are creating methane, which is causing the global warming. So do we eat them to prevent the spread of the methane or do we let them live to let them continue to use their flatulence to create methane that continues to kill the environment? I'm, I'm confused on what we're supposed to do here.
3: Well, it, it, it's really simple. And first of all, any politician who says they're trying to prevent noxious gases and still works in Washington uh, needs to check their you know, privilege there. But in all honesty, you have to look at it from the prism of it has nothing to do with what they say it has to do with, i.e., the environment. It has everything to do with looking at these industries where people are strong and independent. They don't have to rely on government. They don't have to rely on the state. To, to do the things, and I'm talking your farmers, I'm talking your oil and natural gas workers, I'm talking about those who make a good living and don't need any help from Washington. And those are the folks that just magically, by these groups, get targeted and say, well, they we, we can't make them live the way we want them to live, so now we must compel them to do it and say that their lifestyle is, is the big part of the problem. And keep in mind, you know, this was going into, I think, COP 20, whatever it was last year in Dubai. This was part of the UN plan was saying we need to, the United States needs to drop their consumption of meat. And then what did they serve at COP 28? They served beef slabs. And so it is always just applicable to the little people. But no, they're going after the industries of people who are independent. That is what the, the paradigm is.
1: It's unbelievable. You just had an op-ed recently uh, coming out of the Federalist talking about the World Economic Forum and their latest meeting where we had uh, we had John Kerry go out there and talk about ending coal plants. They still talked about trying to end some of the meat. We had the most amount of private jets in one singular location at one time while they're talking about how bad the environment is and how we need to start cleaning the stuff up. Like you said, I mean, when they're talking about ending me and then go for dinner at the end of the day and have a a slab of steak, you can't make this stuff up. It's wild for them to think of these, you know, these rules for thee and not for me.
3: It it absolutely is. And on top of the hypocrisy, you know, I thought the big UN meeting in Dubai at the end of the year was was the, the market for crazy. And then the World Economic Forum folks went on top of it. Here are the ideas that sadly will probably be front and center after the election, right, after people don't have to be accountable to the citizens for a couple of years. They are are honestly talking about a global carbon tax, because money changes weather here, right? These are the scientists to tell us, if we just spent more money, we can change the weather. They're talking about an international crime commensurate with genocide, no joke, called ecocide. So, and, and, Strangely, they don't define exactly what that is. So I don't know if I fertilize my lawn. Mm-hmm. Is that ecocide to my grass? Do I, you know, get run to a international tribunal in Europe? And so these are the crazy ideas. And and I know everyone's like, oh, that guy's got a tinfoil hat on his head. But uh, just like you, I lived through COVID when the government did things that, you know, I didn't think were possible. And so we need to watch what these ideas do and, and how they get started because it could be coming to a state near you.
1: It's going to be coming very soon. Yeah, we're talking with Larry Barrett. He's with Power of the Future. Also, his book, Sabotage, How Joe Biden Surrendered American Energy Independence. While they talk about a global carbon tax, what exactly would something like that entail? Because, correct me if I'm wrong, Larry, but everything, including you and I, we're all made of carbon. Like, that's what creates every materialistic thing in the universe. So, exactly what do we tax here?
3: What a a great question. And and the short answer is, I don't know. Here's what I, I, I suspect. And, and, you know, as you mentioned that, are they going to tax you for creating more carbon when you have a baby? I don't know. But when you look at, let's say you click on those airline tickets or you click on that rental car and you start to see those options of like, do you want to offset? Here is the – you go on the Google Maps and you see, oh, well, this is the more wink carbon-friendly way to go. Yes, it's three weeks longer to get to your destination, but it's the more carbon-friendly way. So what if those started being a little more mandatory, a little less suggestions, a little more mandatory? And what if you wanted to go around them? They say, okay, we'll show you the correct way to get there that's not as carbon-friendly here's the fee oh you want to take the one flight that's a little more carbon heavy instead of the two connectors okay we'll pay an extra fee and it starts in that direction they will usually compel the business here in the united states they'll compel the business to be the tax collector for it in the form of fees and sadly that's how it begins and, and i wouldn't be surprised if you're looking at i mean they've thought about it in france of hey if you're going to be traveling internationally you really shouldn't need to do that according to them and so you should be able to pay a fee for it and this is what happens and and we again we all know the point it's to drain the income of the middle class to make the rich richer and so that they get to control our lives
1: well they like to control and they don't like to, they don't like us traveling any longer because of how bad it quote unquote is for the environment uh, apparently i just found this out recently is that you cannot have two of the same members of the family so to speak that lives in one state but has their vehicles registered so to speak in another state because insurance won't cover you in another state if your residence is in somewhere else from where you're actually driving i'm assuming that's for the sole purpose of the fact that well we don't want you to actually be living somewhere else where you're actually working and doing your stuff because we don't want you to be in separate states we don't want you traveling a whole lot and that's just one step i mean eventually are we still talking about these what they talked about before these 15 minute cities or these uh these new smart cities of what they're trying to work on right now
3: yeah, it not that amazing? These rules come at us from people who have uh, 15 homes in 15 different countries, <laughs> right? Isn't that impressive? But yes, and, and people need to be on the lookout for how these things come to pass. You know, Joe Biden didn't pass his gas stove ban. He wasn't going to put it through Congress because he knows, it, A, it would never pass, and it would be an embarrassment to try to get his own party to vote for it, especially in election year. He took it to the Consumer Product Safety Board and said, let's make a rule through here. His EV mandate never passed through Congress. He going to let the department of energy impose some rules. And so you're exactly right. When we look at, you know, insurance in one state while you try to live in another, they'll just say, "Uh no, we'll 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 fix that loophole." That's what they'll define it as, as a loophole and say, "Now you have to start living this way." It will not go through your representatives. It will not go through the people you elect. It will be some bureaucrat who has never met you doesn't know you and yet is you know salary is paid by you enforcing these
1: rules apart yeah amen to that larry hang on the line here i want to continue this conversation when we come back about how we can start to fight this but some of the other things we could expect coming from these quote-unquote elites and globalists moving forward as we try to battle for our energy what a crazy world
0: this is the voice of reason with andy hoosier Fighting for
1: freedom every day. This is The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Yes, indeed it is. Welcome back into it. 24 minutes past the hour. Radio, TV, live streaming, podcasting. However you hang out with us, we always love you to death and appreciate it very much. we got a few minutes left here with Larry Behrens. I love having him on the program. We've got to make this a regular thing here on the show the book is sabotage how joe biden surrendered american energy independence he's also with power of the future as well we talk about some of the battles against energy your rights to i don't know like live a carbon tax well you're made of carbon so i wonder if they're just going to tax you for just being oh wait they already do that's wild what a concept there later let's talk about some of the other ways they're coming after us here uh obviously living in the middle of the country we talk a lot about agriculture we've heard the u.s department of Agriculture and the Biden administration talk as well about biofuels for tractors and for the uh, the airplanes that farmers use to spray stuff over their their fields. I don't know how efficient this stuff's going to be or if that's even possible. But like you said, I mean, they've already tried to get rid of elect- or, uh, the the natural gas stoves in your home and in your commercial business. So I'm pretty sure they're going after the biofuels now as well for the agricultural industry.
3: Absolutely. And, you know, John Kerry, uh, bless his uh, crazy private jet heart, before he (laughs) gave up his job, he was going after the agriculture industry like nobody's business. He would point out that when you talk about emissions, transportation is the biggest. But the second, we're going to have to do something about the agricultural industry, the people who literally keep us alive, who deliver our food and, and, and give us the way of life that is the best in the world. And John Kerry says, no. No, we're we're not going to do that. And so recently at the WEF, Anthony Blinken, uh, your secretary of state and mine, went there and his big proposal was we are going to use AI to help farmers to include climate when they start growing their crops. And so nothing is better than some D.C. bureaucrat coming to a fourth, fifth, sixth generation farmer in your neck of the woods and say, hey, you know what? We know better. Here's an iPad with AI, and we're going to have Alexa help you figure out how to grow your crops. That is the answers coming out of Washington. And and it would be laughable if it weren't for the fact that they are seriously – going to try to do this. And seriously, when if you don't take it as a suggestion, as we've seen with the EVs, they'll pass the rules to mandate it. The green agenda idea is so good, they have to force them on it.
1: Yeah, it's so good. They got to make sure that we all follow it. If we uh, don't want to, they got to find a way to punish it. It's wild that we're going down this road. Now, The some of the appropriation bills that the House Representatives has passed, we'll see if they actually go through in the federal budget here at some point when we actually get our act together and pass a federal budget, includes repealing the Waters of the U.S. rule, which would be great, but do you think that's actually going to happen as well when they're trying to cram this stuff down our throats? They want control, saying that even if you have a a pond in your backyard and it rains really, really hard, that's now navigable water and property of the federal government and the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the EPA. Like, that's insane to me.
3: Isn't it amazing how every quote-unquote solution they bring to the table, just so coincidentally, I'm sure, just so happens to give government more power over your life. (laughs) Isn't it amazing how to save the environment, you have to give some bureaucrat more say on what happens on your land, what happens in your home, and how you live your life. Again, it's just coincidence. No, it is another form of control, and you're exactly right. The WOTUS rule is part of that as well, and there's any other number of things they're trying to do. I mean, you know, it's interesting and it gets lost now. The Supreme Court a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, struck down the EPA and said, you guys are taking powers that Congress did not give you. It was around uh, power producing factories, and the EPA tried to do what they called their clean air rule and tried to regulate uh, power generating stations that Congress did not give them that power to do it. And Joe Biden just said, oh, uh, yeah, just ignore that ruling. We didn't like the Supreme Court doing that. Just ignore that ruling. And then they have the gall to look at Texas now in the border and say, how dare you? The Supreme Court is everything. And so we have bureaucrats in Washington who pick and choose what laws to uh, enforce or ignore. But rest assured, the one that messes with your life, they will absolutely make sure that that one gets enforced
1: they're all about it they're all about it it is sabotage how joe biden surrendered american energy independence also check out power of the future as well larry we always appreciate it my friend i love chatting with you let's get you back on again real soon brother i uh,
3: would love to andy you have a great
1: day you as well always a pleasure there there we go got to take a break when we come back we'll chat with david barnheiser we'll shift gears a little bit right here on this the voice of reasons the voice of reason with andy hoosier
0: And Reason Meets Radio, this is The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Yes, sure
1: it is Reason, Common Sense, Rationale. That's just what we do here on the program. So, by the way, crisis averted. Crisis averted. I had another candle here in studio. I enjoy doing that as I work throughout the day. I blew out the candle. We don't need another candle incident <laughs> like we had a couple weeks ago. For those that don't remember, our candle blew up in the studio it literally was, it was almost at the end and instead of just like the wick just phasing out and fizzling out and being done no no it caught all of the wax at the bottom on fire and then just blew up literally as the intro of the program was starting so yeah that was fun that was a great time luckily crisis averted everything's everything's all right we're all good Welcome back into the show Reason, common sense, rationale. We try to bring that back to the norm, which is a very difficult thing. It seems to be in the minority in society today. Always appreciate Larry Barron's coming on the program. We will definitely get him on again soon. He's with Power of the Future and his book, Sabotage, as we talk about the energy industry. I want to shift gears just slightly here. We still have some immigration issues to get to and uh, Tucker Carlson out about ready to interview Vladimir Putin in Russia. That'll be an interesting one. I'm sure that that will be on X and will blow up the interweb as he usually does. We'll get to all that and more later, but let's get into our what's trending story of the day. What's trending today? As we talk about reasoning, common sense and rationale, the question that I have is, is it being taught to cognitively think, to actually learn how to think instead of what to think, which is a conversation that we have in our public school system quite often in our K-12. through 12. But then we look at the higher education, which is really where I think a lot of the agenda started, where a lot of that started. But is higher education preparing us for... Getting successful in life, getting prepared for after college, not being just a student, not just regurgitating certain information, and where did we go wrong in some portions in some departments of higher education as well. Happy to have on the program, he is a professor of law emeritus at Cleveland State University. My original home state of the great state of Ohio, author of the book as well, Conformity, Colleges, the Destruction of Intellectual uh, Creativity and Dissent in America's Universities. Happy to have on the program here, Mr. David Barnheiser. David, how are you, my friend?
4: I'm fine, Andy. Thank
1: you. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on the show. This is such a fascinating conversation about killing off creativity, killing off unique thought and individualism almost in higher education because... I thought that's where college, where you were supposed to go for that, was to be creative and to find yourself and individualize and to learn all this. When did we start losing this?
4: Uh, well, the the real point uh, where it diverged was uh, with the Civil Rights Movement, frankly. It generated um, some pressure, and I was part of the Civil Rights Movement. So when I say that, I'm not trying to put everything down at all. I mean, I was I'm a civil rights lawyer. In addition to being a law professor, lawyer, consultant, and the like, um, I love issues of justice, fairness, and and opportunity. And but in thinking, I, you know, everything I ever did in my in my teaching involved teaching people uh, to improve the quality of their thought. To do that, you see, the the problem is, I remember when I went back. When I went to Harvard for a master of law degree, um, at that point, there was a movement that had started in the late uh, 1960s, which is called uh, not critical race theory, as you're used to, but critical legal studies. The whole movement that we're dealing with now, really, including some of the gender movements, uh, came out of um, the Ivy League schools, and Harvard was one of the primary actors. And... The problem is, it turns out that their perspective was a Marxist, and I know this, I'm not trying to be volatile or anything, but a Marxist socialist background. I know this, because when I first began law teaching after receiving that degree, the friends I had made and acquaintances I had made at Harvard Law School called me. They were active in the critical legal studies movement. and sought to very glowingly recruit me to be part of the movement. And they got through the whole spiel. And then at the end of it, I said, what's really about And they said, well, it's socialism and Marxism. And we we think that that is uh, the way we have to go in that. But it'll take a while to get there. So I sort of date the, I mean, there are a lot of things uh, you could say, but I sort of date it and some other people do too. Uh, late 1960s, early 1970s with the critical legal studies movement. But that was a bunch of white guys and white women. And th- that w- problem with that is there became some jealousy during the 1970s with um, it being the the province of law schools. And throughout the universities, the same kind of thinking was adopted and, and it turned into critical race theory and, and women's studies and gender studies. Uh, the funny thing is, if you look at the way they have phrased the critical race theory agendas and and victim and identified victim groups and the like, you will find that the gender studies, the women's studies um, agenda and and menu is almost identical to the critical race theory. So it was it was a coherent. It's a, what you have to understand. The reason I'm saying that. It is a coherent movement. Yeah. It is not something that was accidental. It was something that was created as a coherent movement. I knew people who uh, admitted and stated beyond what they said when they tried to recruit me that um, that it was Marxism that they were communists themselves. Wow. And so it grew and it grew. And one of the, the as I said to someone earlier today, one of the things is. Um, as one person, a a key member of that movement told me in in the late 1980s that they were implementing what he called uh, a a war of attrition. The whole idea was to gradually build and recruit and and throughout the university systems gradually build and recruit um, um, people into a movement that was Socialist Marxist movement, and that then, and it involved a lot of um, minorities, which is great, you know, not for that, for the movement purposes, but because of the opportunity a legitimate effort of that kind uh, created for many people who are my friends who are not part of this particular uh, strategic movement. But um, the idea was that it really was, it grew and grew and grew. The idea of a war of attrition is gradually nibble away, wear down your enemy, Uh, and I wrote a book on Sun Tzu's uh, art of war and strategy some years ago, and and part of that was you were supposed to, you win by gradually not letting your enemy know that you're engaged, even engaged in a war, using the enemy's resources against him, and free speech, and resources, and university positions, and administrative and faculty were part of the part of the game that was being played. They expanded in the administrations, they expanded in the faculties and in terms of the numbers, as they did their, their power base increased and grew. And by say the late 19 mid to late 1990s, they really were in a very powerful position. And, and increasingly since then it, it, they have shifted from, um, the sort of secret war of attrition to an overt takeover of the universities. And that's important too, because since that really had been taking place for uh, three at least three decades for that, they were also in the universities, they changed the nature of the curriculum and were able to uh, to teach and propaganda and indoctrinate people who then went on and, not all of them, but many of them went on to become teachers in the K through 12 system. So they they infiltrated that system too, in school boards and administrations, and in uh, teacher positions, yeah. educational positions. And but at this point, um, that they, they were in control. Something I said to another uh, person earlier today was that uh, not only in control, but As they did this, uh, they were very powerful. They still are. But I mentioned to him the COVID, and the reality is that COVID, as horrible as it might have seemed, in part was was a blessing because the the broadcast of what was really going on in kindergarten classes and, and, and grade school classes and the like, and even uh, other kinds of educational processes, were broadcast into people's homes. The parents saw many of the broadcasts. They were told, the kids were often told, don't let them see it. Yeah. I mean, that's how, how brazen it was. Don't let them see it. But they, the parents did see it, and the parental response to this, uh, often by, by women who are very, who have a number of them have been very courageous and brave on this, the, their response Really is the thing that has been driving the political response to wokeism and critical race theory um, indoctrination. Yeah, that's my summary on it.
1: Wow, it's it's amazing, and you're right. I mean, they were they obviously have been very successful. We see what's happening in higher education right now, and now we see what's going on with this battle in K through 12. And I completely agree with you that the COVID pandemic, as bad as it was with the lockdowns and with people getting sick and so on and so forth, that it woke people up and it exposed what was going on in the school system for us to begin battling. And now we're at the point where they don't like the pushback to the point where they're calling parents domestic terrorists for trying to be involved in the school board. So, I mean, this is a... Matter, yeah, it's it's an incredible. So uh, it's good that we started exposing this, and we can start pushing back a little bit, David. We got to stick on the uh, hang on the line here. We got to take a hard break. When I come back, I want to continue this conversation with you and talk about how they got this started, how they got this implementation going, because obviously whatever they did worked with how much control they have in higher education and now in K through twelve as well, and where they started to get people to not think critically, to not be creative, and how that manipulation began early on. It is the book conformity colleges you can check it out on amazon a brand new book that came out just in the month of january david barnheiser is our guest we'll do some more of this when we come back right around the corner fascinating stuff to understand to get in the inside scoop of what really happened with this conformity movement in higher education last more coming up it stay is here
0: the voice of reason with andy hoosier Fighting for freedom every day.
1: The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Holy cow, man, this show has flown right on by today. I told you strap in, buckle up, and hang tight because we had a lot to talk about and so little time to do it. We have just a few minutes left here as we're hanging out with David Barnheiser. He is author of the book Conformity, Colleges, the Destruction of Intellectual Creativity and Dissent in America's at Universities. talking about how the communists, essentially, the socialists, the radicals, the elites, the large government individuals found a way to infiltrate into higher education, how that's bled through throughout the years and even now has bled into the K-12 system, which is why we're seeing the 1619 Project. We're seeing now the uh, the, the the way that we do certain curriculum across the nation, both in higher education and in K-12. The lack of creativity, the lack of cognitive thinking, the lack of being able to t- learn how to think instead of what to think is fascinating, And, David, I want to ask you, like, when this started back in the day and you saw this and they were approaching you trying to get on board with this movement, how did this start? Like, how were they able to transform these colleges and the young minds that were going to university? What was the steps that they took that they infiltrated, like you said, so little and little by little to where it was unrecognizable? How
4: did they do it? Uh, let's Let's start like this. <laughs> Americans, most Americans are very moral, caring people. You know, they were not perfect. We make mistakes. Our history of racism and discrimination, or that had been done, most of it done away with, um, now has been been reversed. But the reason I say that is because, go back to Sun Tzu for a moment, the, the war of attrition. He says, use the enemy's uh, resources and values against them. And what has happened is using a technique of what we call shaming, because we care deeply, most of us, about fairness and opportunity and decency and morality uh, and treating other people as, as as human beings, real human beings, because we do, by emphasizing our, our mistakes and they don't even do that very very well i mean you mentioned the 1619 project which is a very flawed project that uh, brett stevens of the new york times um even even dared to describe as a thesis or a theme or a theory in charge of uh, of evidence and it really hasn't found its evidence yeah because they're they they do not care about that they don't care about truth and the funny thing is, we don't have enough time to go through all this. But a lot of the European deconstructionist uh, movement that they adopted as a basis for for this movement um, de- depended upon denying the validity of any truth. You couldn't have truth, so that meant they could they could do anything they wanted. But one of the uh, to, that they wanted, but you can't do it in reverse. I mean, it's, it's a one sided deal that, that they're doing. But I want to go back to the idea of shame. Um, we don't want to be racist. We try hard to be decent. We don't want to be sexist, misogynist. We don't want to discriminate against people. And so they took the idea of shaming. They took the idea of use of shaming some people um, as a critical element of how to control people. It's it's what is called often an Orwellian uh, strategy or tactic to, no or malice for that matter, a Orwellian or Maoist strategy to uh, use the values of the system against somebody and and show that they did not live up to the ideal of that system. Well, nobody lives up to to an ideal,
1: sure.
4: But we like to think we did, and and the use of the techniques of shaming has has caused people to both change their mind. They start questioning themselves, and it's also. Uh, made it possible for the the mainstream of this movement to um, shut other people up and make them afraid to say anything. This is this can't be analyzed independent of, of the cancel culture uh, that that exists now. And I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Uncanceling America to to show you that it's not just the schools, it's not only the universities, not only K through 12. It is government, it is journalism, it is uh, Business now, the big businesses, and they're they're kind of like uh, they're kind of recoiling to some extent and backing away from some of the worst of their behaviors. Yeah. But it really has been use of of good people's morality to yeah. construct a narrative, a, a, a damning narrative against them. It
1: and makes sense.
4: Repeated so often that they believe it and then they, they, they keep their heads down and do what
1: they're told. They do it. It makes sense, That's yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, to shame them, to cancel, and to con- control that narrative and that dialogue. And uh, they've done a very good job of that throughout the years. It's something that we have to be recognizable of and push back. It is Conformity Colleges. Find it on Amazon. Find it other places as well. David Barnheiser. David, thank you so, for coming. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, my friend. I love the conversation. we got to do it again real soon.
4: Thank you very much,
1: Andy. Hey, appreciate it. Good stuff. I wish we had more time. we got to do some more of that. Until then, though, we're back at it tomorrow for a middle of the week Wednesday. We'll see you on the radio. This is The Voice of Reason.